afternoon, everyone. It's really a pleasure on this absolutely beautiful fall afternoon to welcome all of you indoors uh, to uh, what is uh, the first of three lectures this year that are will be given by members of our own faculty about their own uh, scholarly or scientific work. Uh, this is a series that I inaugurated uh, over eight years ago now because I realized um, that so often we invite scholars from all over the world to come and speak to us at Princeton, and yet we so seldom have an opportunity to hear one of our own uh, talk about their own work. And so this uh, series was really created uh, with that goal in mind. And over the years, uh, the attendance at these lectures is a wonderful affirmation of how, uh, how much people value and welcome the opportunity to know what their colleagues are doing. Um, this afternoon's lecture, the first lecture in this series, will be given uh, by Professor Naomi Leonard. And to introduce her, I have asked uh, the chair of the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, Lex Smith, the Eugene Higgins Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, to provide the introduction. Lex. Uh, thank you, Shirley. Um, it is indeed an honor to uh, introduce uh, today's speaker. Um, Naomi Leonard uh, received her uh, Bachelor of Science and Engineering degree from uh, our department at Princeton in 1985. And uh, she then went on to work as an engineer in the electric power industry for four years. And then she decided that graduate work was for her, and she took her MS and PhD degrees in electrical engineering. Notice the switch of fields there from the University of Maryland. And then when she graduated there, she joined our department uh, in 1994. And it's been a remarkable career since then. Um, she is now the Edwin S. Wilsey Professor of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering. She's an associated faculty in the program in Applied and Computational Mathematics. Uh, in 2004, she was uh, awarded a John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation Fellowship. Uh, the, the list goes on. I'm not going to give it all to you, but just to give you some of this. She's a, a fellow of the Institute for Electrical and Electronic Engineers. She received the University of California at Santa Barbara Muhammad Dali Distinguished Lecture Award, the Automatica Prize Paper Award, Office of Naval Research Young Investigator Award, National Science Foundation Career Award, and in 2001, she was the Lisa Meitner Guest Professor at Lund University in Sweden, and in 2007, she was a visiting professor at the University of Pisa in Italy. Her work has been described as brilliant, carefully and beautifully crafted, mathematically rigorous, theoretically deep, and conceptually elegant. But I think that one of the most interesting things about watching her career is how she has moved from uh, a deep theoretical analysis of nonlinear dynamics and control to including experiments and widening the scope of her work so that what uh, was theoretical work became very practical and her work has found application in the control and uh, operation of underwater vehicles and that led to some wonderful experiments actually done in Monterey Bay and Naomi and her students all travelled to Monterey Bay I think for a couple of summers right, and uh, spent their time uh, actually 
operating underwater vehicles and monitoring the, uh, the signals and trying to analyze the patterns of the movement, trying to develop these coordinated control uh, systems. And from there, the natural evolution has been to look at schooling and flocking behavior, and that leads us to today's talk, Flocks and Fleets, Collective Motion in Nature and Robotics. Thank you, Naomi. working? Can you hear me? Great. So thank you very much. Thank you, Lex. Thank you, Shirley, for the invitation. It's really a special pleasure to be able to speak to this audience of uh, colleagues and students and family and friends and others from the community. Uh, so my goal today, actually I have three goals. Uh, my first goal is to give you some insight into how a complex motion of a group as a whole can emerge from a collection of relatively simple individuals. And my second goal is to uh, show you how it's possible and why it's so illuminating to study collective motion of both natural groups and robotic groups as part of the same story. And my third goal is to impress upon you the role of feedback in all of this. So by feedback, I mean the responsive decision-making of the individual and how mathematical models and mathematical methods can be used to formalize an investigation of collective motion. So by a group, I'm referring to a collection of individuals, so let's call them agents, where every agent can move around independently on its own. Every agent can send something about its local environment, including uh, something about the external world and or something about the other, the other individuals in the group. And every individual can make its own decisions about how it wants to respond to what it can sense. So a group here can mean um, a collection of natural agents like this zebra herd, this flock of birds, this school of dolphins. Um, so here an agent is an animal that can walk or fly or swim, can sense and can make its decisions on how to respond to what it senses. But a group can also refer to a collection of um, engineered agents. So for example, a, collect, a collection of uh, robotic vehicles that can uh, move on land or in the air or in the sea, perhaps with some purpose such as environmental monitoring or exploring a new terrain or performing a search and rescue operation. Uh, so here every agent is a robot that has its own means of propulsion and sensing and computation so that it can, it can also walk or drive around or fly or swim on its own. It can sense its local environment and can make, use its computational power to make its own decisions about how to respond to what it senses. So you can see, in fact, very well from this beautiful video that uh, the remarkable collective motion of natural groups can provide enormous inspiration if we're trying to think about how to design uh, robotic groups. So for example, this, this uh, animal groups like this fish school move in these beautiful patterns, which are believed to give these animals advantage in things like uh, foraging and migration and avoiding predators. And we'd certainly like to enable those kinds of qualities in groups of robotic uh, vehicles. We'd like our vehicles, for instance, to act 
like efficient foragers of information or avoiding uh, potential hazards. Um, in fact, this uh, second movie over here is an animation of uh, uh, this robotic uh, ocean sampling network that my colleagues and I developed and demonstrated in Monterey Bay, California. And here there are a collection of these robotic underwater vehicles that you'll see in a second that move in and around the bay. They move around on their own, collecting data on the ocean physics, on the ocean biology. Here the idea is to, to gain a better understanding of, um, of the coastal ocean, of the ecosystem, of the role of the ocean in, the, in climate change. And what we're interested in um, is, is how to uh, program, see these little guys moving around, these individual robots, their own onboard decision making so that they can behave, for example, like a school of fish to become efficient foragers of useful data despite stormy seas and other challenges associated with the uh, ocean. So, but I want to point out that this is not a story of biomimicry. Animals and robots are so very, very different. We're not trying here to copy nature and and put it into the robots. Instead, what we're looking for are the, the, the mechanisms and the principles underlying the connection between what individuals do, the decisions that individuals make, and what we see at the level of the group. And so this raises the important questions that we try to address. That is, what are the individual interactions? What are the decisions that the individuals make that lead to performance at the level of the group? And how can we develop a predictive means for understanding this? So for instance, what individual interactions and decisions lead to fast decision making of a group, lead to efficient resource collection at the level of the group, lead to robust behavior despite uncertainty and disturbances in the environment at the level of the group. And these questions are challenging. They're challenging both in biology. They push the limits of what we know animal groups are doing. And they push the limits in engineering. They push the limits of how we are able reliably to design decisions on individuals that lead to the kind of group performance that we're looking for. So it gives us a joint challenge here. On the one hand, we want to understand how to explain the enabling mechanisms in animal groups. And on the other hand, we want to understand how to define provable mechanisms for our robotic groups. And so this suggests an integrated approach. One where we want to think about common models for the biological and the engineered settings. So the key uh, element in this that I mentioned at the very beginning is this notion of feedback. So feedback exists in any system that's changing in time, whether it be engineered or natural. Every system in our body uses feedback as a way to deal with uncertainty and still be able to regulate and perform. So feedback has three components to it, three steps. A system will first sense. It will take some measurement of how it's behaving. It will then apply a rule. It will have some response that it determines in, re in response to what it sensed. And then it will act. It will, it will implement this response. And it will do this over and over to correct its behavior so that it behaves in the way that it wants to or it's supposed to. So here's a, a very mundane example. Think about the cruise control in your car. You, you've punched in. 55 miles per hour, and so the cruise control kicks in. It's a, it's a feedback loop. First, what sense? The speed of the car. Then a rule is applied. For example, you would compare the speed that you're moving to the speed, the 55 miles per hour that you'd like to go, and 
a rule would determine what to do. Then, you'd act, then the car would act on that. It would accelerate or decelerate to correct the error in the speed. Of course, it's, it's more complicated than that. The rule has to be pretty sophisticated so that not only do you, you get to 55 miles per hour, but that you do it in a way that doesn't make everybody in the back of the car uncomfortable. You don't want to exceed the speed limit or you know, the driver might get a ticket. And you may have to worry about you know, whether the car is going uphill or downhill or the road is bumpy or it's raining. So we use tools from I have a whole suite of mathematical tools to think about you know, how to design this box. What should this rule be? So this is already complicated enough, but when we start to think about groups, then we have one of these feedback loops for every single individual in the group. So I'm showing you here only a picture of three. Picture this as one fish, two fish, and three fish. Each one of them has its own loop. Each one is sensing its environment, each one is responding, and each one is, is, is acting. And it's already messy enough with all these arrows, and that's just three fish. There's extra arrows here because they may be sensing each other. So in order to get our hands around this, let's, let's look at each of these three boxes. The first one is the sensing box. And again, this is already quite complicated. We have lots of individuals who are sensing their environment, sensing each other. They may not be able to sense everybody. So we have to somehow keep a track of who they're sensing. And that might be even changing in time as they move relative to one another. And so the way we go about modeling this is to make use of a um, a very well-known mathematical construct called a graph. So a graph is a way to encode the interagent sensing topology, who's sensing whom at a given moment. Um, so what you see here is an example of a graph. Now I have six agents, or six fish. Each one of those purple dots represents a fish. And the arrows tell us, at this moment in time, who's sensing whom. So for instance, fish number one has an arrow pointing to four, three, and two. So fish number one can sense those three other fish at this moment in time. Fish three can't sense fish one. Maybe he's ahead of fish one and he can't see behind him. But he can sense fish two and fish five. So what we do with this is not just draw the picture, but we can encode this in an array of numbers. We call this array L. So this encodes all of, these, all of these dots and all of the arrows in between them. And I've shown you a couple of examples. Here's an example with four fish. We call this a complete graph because every agent can sense every other agent. And here's the corresponding encoding of that that interaction. Here's another situation with four fish, but everybody can only sense you know, one other guy, and everybody's only sensed by one other guy, and this we call it a directed cycle, and again, there's a, an encoding, an L array that it describes what's going on. Okay, the second box then is apply the rule, okay? And so what are some of the basic ingredients here that we use in our model? So we think about basic ingredients for individual decisions that are motivated by what biologists understand animals are doing and by what we think is practical to implement on engineered systems, on robotic vehicles. So, so there's three things we have to consider. We can only have a rule that takes into account what these agents can sense. So, and that might be quite limited. So an agent might only be able to sense its local neighbors, guys nearby, and not necessarily the whole group. And when they sense a, a local neighbor, it may be um, the case that they can't sense the absolute position or the absolute speed. Only the position, say, or the speed or the heading of, the, of their neighbors relative to themselves. And likewise, if they're sensing something about their environment, say the, the concentration of a nutrient, they're not going to be able to sense the whole environment, like a gradient over a region. They'll only be able to sense, take measurements along the path that they're moving. 
So then how do agents decide? So we model things with no central command. So there's no leaders, there's no omniscient leaders in the group. And the decisions are all decentralized. Everybody's making up their own mind what to do. And finally, what do agents decide? Well, they typically want to keep a cohesive group, so they're going to try to align with their neighbors and maybe be attracted to, to some of their near neighbors. Of course, they're going to want to avoid collisions, so when they get very close, they're going to repel from uh, their near neighbors. Okay, the third block was ACT. Right? So here we're going to model all of our individuals as moving around on a flat surface at the same constant speed. Okay, so what can they do if they're moving at a constant speed? The only thing that's left to do is to steer, to turn around. Uh, and so the rule is going to be one that's going to pres prescribe a steering rate, a turning rate, that depends upon the available measurements. In particular, measurements of relative headings and measurements of relative positions. And I've shown you, shown you here a little diagram. So this is looking overhead now on our three fish. Right? The black arrows show you the direction of motion. The blue lines tell you the path of where they've just been. And these theta, so theta tells us the angle, the direction, the heading of fish number one. Theta two is the direction of fish number two. The R's tell us uh, the positions. Okay, so those are the ingredients at the level of the individual. Now I have to tell you something about how we characterize collective motion at the level of the group. And we do that using this notion of synchrony. Okay, so I'm showing you two different pictures here of a group of 12 individuals. Again, you're looking overhead. These little circles are the individuals. And on the left, you see 12 guys are all heading due east. And so their, their headings are all synchronized. Right? Now, if you look at the picture on the right, there's 12 individuals. You might not be able to tell because not only are their headings synchronized, they're heading in the southwest direction, their positions are also synchronized. They're right on top of each other. Okay, so if we want to think about how to connect uh, these two, the, the individual level and the group level, it's important to understand how to um, encode or, or, or measure synchrony in a group. And so we do that in a very simple way that I've illustrated up here in the top left corner. So I've, I've, I've drawn our three fish angles, theta 1, theta 2, theta 3, and I've drawn these red arrows that have length one, pointing in each of those three directions. The black arrow is the average of these three red arrows. So it can take a value between zero and one, its length. I'm going to call its length p theta. And that, that number from zero to one gives me a, a measure of synchrony. Because if everybody's all synchronized, then the average is just the vector that points in that direction. It has length one. And if the headings are all such that uh, p theta is equal to zero, then the directions are all completely anti-synchronized or unsynchronized. We actually call it balance because they're all balancing each other out. So this is the case, for instance, if for every guy heading this way, there's another guy heading in exactly the other direction. Okay. Now what's more is that this measure of synchrony also is a measure of the speed or the momentum of the group as a whole. So picture all these guys heading in the same direction moving at their constant speed. They're all moving off together, like I'm showing you in this bottom picture. Right? They're all moving off at their maximal. The group speed is the maximal it can possibly be, just like peak theta is the highest it can be. And when they're moving in such a way that their headings are all balancing out, the group isn't going anywhere. The center of the mass of the group is zero. Peak theta is equal to zero. And this is interesting because these are the two motions that I think you'll recall from that video of the fish. They were either 
sort of all moving together, or they were all moving in a circle. And what's interesting is that this one little parameter distinguishes those two very important motions. And it's extremized. It's maximum for one, and it's minimum for the other. And so that suggests an interesting possible rule for what an individual might be doing that leads to this kind, these kinds of behaviors. So let me explain this. So if you take this measure, this number p theta, and you take its gradient relative to theta 1. So what does that mean? That just gives us a formula for how theta 1, how fish 1 should change its heading to increase p theta. What does that mean? It means it's heading towards contributing to more synchrony, right? That essentially gives us a rule. And what's really nice is that formula is actually a function of relative headings. And I can take it a step further so I can manipulate p theta a little bit. So it depends upon L so that I encode all the neighborhoods in there so that when I take the gradient of the L-dependent p theta, I get a rule for you know, my fish one to change its heading to increase synchrony that depends upon relative headings of its neighbors. Okay, So this gives us a rule that looks something like this. It's actually a very simple and natural rule that looks very similar to the kinds of rules biologists uh, like to use. It says basically, look at your neighbors, look at the relative headings of them, sum those up, divide by the number of neighbors, and then multiply by some gain, some constant, call it k theta, and that's your steering rate. So if k theta is positive, you're, you're turning in the direction for increased synchrony. If k theta is negative, you're moving away from synchrony. In fact, you're moving towards balancing headings in the group. And so I'm showing you the case here where these 12 individuals, again, you're looking overhead at these guys moving around, and they've converged to, to um, synchronized heading because they've applied this rule with k theta is equal to a positive number. And on the right, they're applying that very same, very same rule with just this very small change in one single parameter in their decision rule. They've made it negative. And now they're moving around so that the center of mass of this group isn't going anywhere. So what's really nice is it's very systematic. And we can actually prove things. We can, we can prove, for instance, what kinds of neighborhoods guarantee these kinds of convergence results. So I've just put in a little cartoon to illustrate this. So, so picture our three fish. So fish one is heading towards 11 o'clock, fish two towards 7 o'clock, fish three towards 6 o'clock. Fish two and three, they're just going to maintain their old heading. But fish one is going to try really hard to synchronize. So he's going to apply this rule. So here he is. You know, p theta is pretty low. They're not very well synchronized. He applies his rule, and in the next time step, he says, I should be heading towards 8 o'clock. So he moves towards 8 o'clock, and here we go, moving up the p theta hill. He's just doing his own local thing and contributing to synchrony. He does it again. He's, he computes that he should be heading um, towards 7 o'clock, and again, synchrony is increased. So Everything I've said so far only has to do with the synchrony of the directions of motion. I haven't said anything about the spatial synchrony. But what's really nice is that we can, we can derive a measure of spatial synchrony in a completely analogous way to what we just did for the headings. So call this measure PS, derive it completely analogously. And again, I'll take the gradient of this with respect to theta 1 to figure out how, theta, how fish 1 should adjust its heading to now increase synchrony in, in the spatial dimension. So the synchrony here, what's going on, is that I have these guys, in addition to, to steering, I have them have a, a steering term that's just a constant. So they keep wanting to go around a circle in addition to organizing themselves. 
And so what the, the synchrony going on here is that the circles are becoming coincident. They're synchronizing the circles about which they're traveling. And so you can see in the bottom here, when I have my individuals apply this rule, where it's the gradient of the spatial synchrony measure, so now KS is the corresponding uh, dial. If they make it positive, all these guys move on to the same circle. Furthermore, we can do both the spatial synchronization and the, we can prove that the spatial synchronization and the, the direction synchronization can happen simultaneously. And so when we have our individuals apply these, again, very simple rules, and in this case, KS is positive for spatial synchrony, K theta is positive for heading synchrony, starting from random initial conditions and directions, these guys move on to their, the same circle, and they're moving together in the same direction. So they're on top of each other. But we can also, you know, change the, the sign of this heading synchrony. So here, they're looking for spatial synchrony, but balancing of headings, and you see them moving around the same circle where their headings, you know, organize in such a way that the center of mass isn't moving anymore. And so we can go on with this. The story goes on. Um, one can derive a, a whole slew of these kinds of synchrony parameters. Again, taking the derivative and getting new terms of, um, for steering rates. And I'm showing you here uh, in a second six of these um, situations where 12 individuals, again, you're looking overhead at 12 individuals with funny initial positions and directions, and they're all going to apply essentially the same uh, uh, individual uh, rule, except they're going to change, they're all going to have these very small changes in the parameters that they use. So you're going to see very, very different patterns emerging. Let me start the movie. Um, so the guys in the top left are going to synchronize. The guys in the top middle are going to organize themselves, and this is with just a very small change in parameters, so that there are two groups of six on opposite sides of the circle. On the top right, it's three groups of four, then we have four groups of three, six groups of two, and 12 groups of one. So what's really interesting here is that we suddenly have this whole rich family of motion patterns that we know how they emerge from very simple or small changes in a very small number of parameters at the level of individual decisions. And what, furthermore, that because we know how to do this, we can reverse engineer things. We could look at animal groups, compute what the value of these measures of synchrony are, and back out you know, you know, plausible individual rules that would lead to those kinds of patterns. We can do the same thing in engineering. We could say, we'd, you know, wouldn't it be great if our vehicles moved in a certain way to collect data most efficiently, and then back out what those individual rules should be such that these kinds of patterns would emerge. And, and the, the, the story goes further. So um, here's a, uh, uh, a case where you can imagine that individuals with different modes of sensing might sense different um, signals for different purposes. So for instance, in this in this case, I have my 12 guys, um, and their sense of relative position is very local. So these four guys on top, for instance, are only sensing each other when it comes to relative position, so they've organized onto one circle. But when it comes to relative headings, they can look further. Perhaps they're able to sense relative headings more easily, so they can see further. So these guys are now organizing themselves in terms of which way they're heading across these loops. Right? You can see this is actually four groups of three when it comes to synchrony 
of headings. So we demonstrated all this um, in an experiment in Monterey Bay, California, this one that I told you about at the beginning, um, in uh, August uh, 2006, on these um, robotic uh, vehicles called underwater gliders. So these are carrying sensors, and their job here was to move around um, and uh, collect the richest possible data in this uh, region that was that is 20 kilometers by um, 40 kilometers by more than a thousand meters deep, just north of Monterey Bay, um, and um, we programmed into these individual guys these very rules that I just showed you, so that on their own they could go out there and perform um, good. Uh, schooling, good foraging for information. Um, and they did this actually over the course of um, almost 24 days straight during the summer. And I'm going to show you here a movie of them moving around. So this is quite sped up. This is where they moved over the course of 24 days. So these, the colored circles are the positions of these individuals over the course of time. And the gray lines between them show you at any given time who's sensing whom. Okay, these arrows in the back uh, actually show you the currents in the ocean, so which are quite non-trivial, especially when they get red. And they serve to push these guys around quite a bit. So these guys are trying to, you know, do their very simple little, you know, responsive behavior. And uh, these patterns are emerging nonetheless uh, because they're using feedback. And so this was quite a success. I mean, the data set that we recovered was apparently unprecedented for the, the group of oceanographers who I work with. So we also demonstrated this on data of fish moving around. So here you're looking at uh, the digitized video of fish being tracked in a tank. So on top is a school of four fish. On the bottom is a school of eight fish. These are very small fish. And what we did, because we have this digitized video, we can um, take the data and at every instant of time compute the measure of synchrony. Here we're looking at heading synchrony. Right? So we know what all the heading angles are. We can compute the measure of synchrony as a function of time. So what I'm plotting for you here is a histogram of that synchrony measure, okay, where zero actually corresponds to synchronized and one corresponds to balance. And so for this particular group, where these four little guys actually were moving around together, you see this peak towards synchrony. And the one on the bottom, you see this peak towards balance. And sure enough, these guys were really just milling around. And the center mass of the group was really going nowhere. OK, so this gives you a feel for this framework that we've developed. And um, what I'd like to do now is to show you um, where we're going with this. So I'm going to give you three uh, examples of how we're using uh, this framework to um, answer some of these uh, open questions that I, I raised at the very beginning. OK, so the first example is um, uh, a look that we're taking. This is in collaboration with Ian Cousin uh, from the Ecology and Evolutionary biology department. So we're looking at a particular um, data set that consists of a school of two fish. Okay. And these fish exhibit uh, oscillatory speeds. So they're speeding up and slowing down and speeding up and slowing down. And moreover, 
when they're doing this, when one guy is speeding up, the other guy is slowing down. So I'll show you the movie. They're moving, uh, you know, they're oscillating spatially with respect to one another, which is quite interesting in and of itself. So we take this mathematical framework that we've developed and we try to explore, for instance, what are these guys regulating with this behavior, but also what are the possibilities that this kind of oscillatory behavior, perhaps oscillatory information passing, might imply. We've extrapolated, for instance, so those two little fish seem to be moving in a relatively straight line, but what if you take these very same rules and apply it to individuals moving around a curve? So remember our individuals that are trying to align their headings and move around the same circle, but what if they're now oscillating their speeds? You get this actually quite beautiful pattern here where the center of the group is moving around the circle, but these guys are moving in this elliptic pattern relative to one another. And this is quite reminiscent of what you see in nature, where there's this sort of continuous exchanging of roles. Everybody gets to be out front and be seen. Everybody gets to be safe in the inside of the curve. Everybody gets to be back observing everybody, and then they have to take their turn being exposed. It also suggests some very interesting things in the engineered context, because the spatial density of measurements, if these guys were sensors, is quite rich here. So picture this as a, you know, the boundary of a phytoplankton patch or an eddy in the ocean. These guys would be collecting very rich kinds of, of data. Okay, so the second example uh, is one that is uh, a project that we're doing in collaboration with Simon Levin and Ian Cousin, um, where we're looking at this group but we're considering the fact that there may be some heterogeneity in information that these guys have. So most of these guys are perfectly ignorant, but maybe there are some subgroups of perhaps the older, wiser fish who've been there yesterday and have this idea that you know, the food is in one direction. So let's say there's one little subgroup that thinks the food is in direction phi1, and one other little subgroup that thinks the direction is in phi2. Then the question is, can we use our mathematical framework to predict or understand what's going to happen. And what's going to happen is a function of, say, the, sort of the magnitude of the conflict. Or, the, you know, all these guys are sensing one another and still trying to school. These, these uh, informed individuals aren't identified in any way, and they're not explicitly communicating. They're not saying, hey, you follow me. Um, but they have this little tug. And so we want to understand, for instance, as a function of the magnitude of this little tug, or perhaps the ratio of informed individuals to un for uninformed individuals, what's going to happen. So for instance, maybe like on the, on the left here, they'll all synchronize their headings in the direction of phi1. Or maybe they'll all synchronize their headings in the direction of phi2. Or maybe they'll all split the difference, depending upon these different kinds of parameters. OK, and my third example is one in which we're taking a hard look at this robustness to noise story. So here's a story where we think very hard about the fact that individuals, when they sense things, they're going to be pretty noisy measurements. And when they make decisions, they may have a lot of uncertainty in these decisions. And so we want to understand, at the level of the group, how robust the synchrony is to this noise. And in particular, we want to understand how robust the synchrony is to the noise as a function of who's sensing whom, the sensing the interconnections. Okay, so what you're looking at here is, is a preliminary result that we can, we can, uh, we can study. And this is a, on the, on the vertical axis, 
this is a measure of this robustness at the level of the group, okay? And so the lower the curve, the better the robustness to noise. And so we've plotted this as a function of the number of agents in the group. And what all these different color symbols represent are different interconnection graphs, different situations of different guys sensing different guys. So we're looking at what kinds of sensing topologies give us the best robustness. And so the, the, the one that's, I don't know if you can see it, the bottommost curve, which has these black pluses, that refers to the complete graph, the one where every individual is sensing every other individual. Okay, and that's the one that does the best among these. But you'll notice that these, the, the curve corresponding to the, um, the green star is a graph which we call the directed star. So this is a graph where every individual is sensing one guy, and that one guy is sensing nobody. Okay, so very, very, very few interconnections, and yet we have this, you know, matches performance and robustness. That's pretty interesting, right? And furthermore, this, this, uh, the green star, the, the filled-in star, refers to the undirected star, meaning that not only can everybody sense this one guy, but he can sense everybody. Okay, so we've just doubled the number of interconnections. You think, oh, that should be better, but no, somehow, it leads to a degradation in robustness, right? So there's lots of very subtle things to be understood here. And, you know, even this little first kind of result is, is pointing to some of these interesting ideas. Okay, so finally, I'd like to um, show you something um, that's kind of fun, that's, that's brand new. Um, so to complement this kind of mathematical analysis, we're going forward by pursuing additional exper experiments. And this is a collaboration with Ian Cousin and his research group. And so the idea here is that we're actually physically integrating robots with animals, with fish in this context. And we want to do this so that we can have, you know, somewhat controlled experiments so that we can explore all these different questions that we've been, been studying. And so what we do is that we make replicas of fish, of real fish. So we take casts of already dead fish, make little fake ones, and we mount them on little sleds, okay? We put them in this tank, so they're swimming around with a real fish. So this tank is something like four feet by seven feet. We raise it off the ground so that we can put little robots, little wheeled robots that can move around under the tank, okay? And then we pair every one of these replicas with a robot. And we do that by putting magnets in the bottom of the sled and magnets on the top of the robot. So the robot moves around and just simply drags its paired replica with it. Okay, then we put a camera overhead. So the camera is taking a video of what's going on. Okay, we, we do image processing on this video so that essentially we can, you know, via, you know, the computer and Bluetooth, we can the robot and its fish can know its local environment. It can make decisions on its own. So we have this autonomous little, you know, fake fish that's, you know, infiltrated the group. Well, in fact, we can have many of them. So let me just show you. This is sort of hot off the press. This is brand new. Um, here is uh, a little uh, run when we made a fake guy actually to look like a scary predator. So. <laughs> So the fake guy is um, swimming around. Um, <laughs> and, and here you can see you know, the kind of image processing that we're doing. So in this case, 
we're using the image processing, for instance, to collect signals that perhaps this predator might use, like the centroid of the school of fish, or the boundary of the school, or maybe the momentum of the group, and when it's going to make its attack. But it's quite interesting. I mean, the top, the top movie is kind of crazy, but um, you know, one can, in a very controlled way, actually, think about how to use this experiment to think about how this particular group is going to respond to disturbances. So when this guy comes close, which takes a little while, um, you know, it looks like a bite is taken out of this ellipse. And it's very interesting. When we can, using the video, you can back out what everybody's doing. You can see how guys are moving relative to one another, how the graph is changing as a result of a disturbance, how guys move away, how information may be passed. And we can apply our mathematical tools to try to further understand these questions. Okay, so I'd like to now um, conclude, but I want to first acknowledge my research group. So my acknowledgement goes out to um, include past uh, postdocs and students as well, but this is a picture of my current research group. So these are folks that are incredibly creative and insightful and hardworking, and it's really because of them that this work is so much fun and so rewarding. So with that, I'd like to thank you all for your attention. So one of the reasons I showed you only the case where our fake guy was a predator was that we're still working on getting the case where the fake guy is conspecific up and running. And the way we're going to actually start to do that, I mean, I think it's actually very, very important. I mean, there's some precedence for this. So people say that, you know, you have to paint on the eyes really carefully on your fake eyes. Um, but I think the way they move is really important. So the, the very first experiment we're going to do is one in which uh, we're going to sort of replicate an experiment that was done with a real fish. So um, one of uh, Ian's postdocs has run an experiment where one fish gets trained to know that there's something out there. And so you know, they open the gate and all these fish go out and this guy swims off towards this food. And so we have the digitized video and so we can back out the path of this guy and we can give it to our fake eyes so that when we open the gate and let these guys go, it will be our fake guy doing it and we'll hope that this will sort of convince the other guys because it's moving in a fish-like way. Even though it's different, uh, it's moving in a fish-like way and we're hoping to get these guys to respond. I think it also depends upon the species. So some you know, strong schoolers may be more likely to, to not 
care that it's a little funny looking or smells a little different um, than others. Yeah, so we're actually right in the middle of doing this. So we're looking, you've probably seen, it was on the cover of Physics Today, these the starling flocks. So one of the, actually we're taking that data and applying uh, these measures. But the hard part is that we don't know what the interconnections are. So this is a really interesting way to compare, you know, hypothesize interconnections. So we can look at the starlings and these people have proved that what the guys do is that they don't, their neighborhood doesn't consist of, you know, individuals within a certain radius. They've tried to to uh, prove that it consists of, you know, in this case, it's something like seven nearest neighbors, right? So if we apply that as the, the, the way to, to define what the connections are, we get our graph. The graph changes with time, but we can study that graph. Unfortunately, it's, you know, thousands of birds, so there's some computational issues. Um, and, and, and see what kind of robustness measures we get. We could check if, the, if we hypothesize a different sense of paradigm. So instead of it being number of neighbors, it's being distance related. So your neighbors are all the ones within a certain distance and see how that changes robustness. We can compare it to you know, a random distribution too to see if this is actually really meaningful. You know, are they moving themselves in a meaningful way relative to some kind of randomness? So we're trying that. Yeah, that's a good question. So you mean the robots and not the, the real fish. Right, so the real fish, so the real fish have many mechanisms, right? They have vision and they have a lateral line so they can sense local flow. They can also use olfactory sense, they can smell. Um, in this case, for this species, it's believed that they actually don't use their lateral line in the context of schooling. So um, George Lauder at uh, Harvard has done some experiments uh, looking at the shed vortices off these guys and realizing that they're not positioning themselves in any special way with respect to that. And also, um, Ian and his group have noticed that when the, the lights go down in the lab, the fish don't school at all. Right? They don't see. Um, so, so in this context, we're imagining that vision is playing a central role for them. So for our fake guys, it's very um, artificial, right? Because we actually have a global picture of everything that's but we can pass to them from the processed image whatever it is that we want. So we could hypothesize that it was vision. We could, you know, research for these fish what is the radius they can see, or, or maybe they can't see behind them. You know, how much they can see, and we could pass that information. So we can we can manipulate it to look however we want. In fact, we could explore different kinds of hypotheses. Tell me, in lots of uh, human type interactions or groups. Yeah, we use a very simple level. Uh, the individuals start to be getting feedback, not just on our neighbors, and not even just about every individual in the group, right. but on the group performance as a whole. Right. So in a simple case, you know, 10 people are trying to lift the calendar to get another member, right. or whatever. They better not just watch their neighbors, but, you know, someone has to call out, you know, where or you hit the doorway or something, you better adjust. Right. So some, some have been monitoring the group as a whole. I actually think that's quite an important feature of group 
decision making. Right, right, right. Without going to that, is there anything at all comparable to that that you're aware of in the uh, non-human uh, Absolutely. world? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I was thinking that you might want individuals to be able to map how well different groups are doing in order to join the most productive groups, so to speak. Yeah, that'd be, uh, be a case where they would have to map groups as a whole. So I just wondered if you know if you were Yeah, I mean, so some of the stuff we do, I mean, this is this is sort of one aspect of the work that we do. Even some of the experiments we've done in the ocean have been, um, have had more of a kind of a centralized information coming in or something about, you know, what's going on at the level of the group coming into individuals. So for instance, we've been looking at problems of individuals. So every guy is taking a, just a scalar measurement, say a temperature in the ocean. And we would like them to do things like climb a gradient because we're looking for the cold water. Or we'd even like them to, if it's completely unknown, we'd like them to basically draw us a contra plot, you know, like, you know, trace a line of, you know, 14 degrees C in the ocean and 14.5 degrees C, just to give us some idea of the structure of what's out there. And so what these guys do is they collaborate. In fact, they, they work like little filters, like a Kalman filter, to, to, to work together to try to do this good job, right? So they're getting some feedback about how well they're doing these kind of things, right? So that they, they can, you know, follow the, the curve despite the noise. So that's, that's one kind of example. Yeah. I wonder if there's another kind of question that either you or others have thought about that involves groups and design or engineering in the sense of uh, responses and emergencies. So if your fish are people and you have a fire or an emergency, has anyone ever tried to think about how you use this to design uh, a space to get out faster or uh, emergency response. Yeah, I mean, I know that Ian, for instance, looks at you know crowd control stuff. So he's looking at you know the emotions of, of people and how they respond. Is that what you're talking about in the context of people or reverse engineering the question uh, a little more? Maybe in the context of emergency response. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is what we, we don't do with emergency response, but we have we have to you know have these guys do patterns for for you know coverage, and we have to worry about them not going off to too shallow depths, or they'll sort of run aground. We have to worry about you know we get in trouble if there's some big you know ship that comes through, and you know our little yellow guy is getting in the way. So we got to deal with that kind of stuff. So I have a question about energy efficiency. like in a lot of these underwater robotic or situations, one of the limitations is how much energy you have with you, the battery size or the fuel or whatever you're using. Is there a way to tweak your model or to bring this into your model to, say, increase the lifetime and, and gather data? Um, you mentioned that you were able to gather more data than, than you, could, you could collect, but if you could extend your lifetime by, say, coordinating the motion, the, the two robots drag on each other, or they avoid certain high-speed currents yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, this idea that, you know, we come up with a pattern and then we back out what we do. These patterns that we come up with are ones that have been optimized, for instance, to maximize information. So we have this finite number of individuals. We can compute, as time goes on, what the information landscape looks like. So we want to send the right guy to the right place, right? And how do we do that? You know, these would be the kinds of things that we would do in a separate step, right? Think about what are these, what are these, 
patterns that optimize you know, data collection. So that's kind of efficient. When you look at the agents, can you also look at a pair of agents, let's say like a mother and a cub or a pup or whatever they call it, you know, a fish? Think of a chicken and a cat, let's say, where they want to stick near each other, but if they get separated, the, the herd thing still works. They're still going to stick with zebras rather than Right, mommy. right. So that, yeah. So that would be making this more heterogeneous. So that, yeah, so that some individuals would have, you know, a, maybe a stronger attraction to some other individuals, right? I mean, it's an extension of this, and I, I can't say that we have all the answers yet. But one could examine this by extending the model not directly. I was guessing when you model it, you have the same rules yeah. for each agent. Yeah. And this non-homogeneity would be for some of them. Put in an extra rule, which is stick with, we'll stick with her, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like the, the heterogeneous group where we have these yes. sort of preferred directions. Now it's not a fixed preferred direction, it's maybe a fixed neighbor. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's precisely what we look at when we look at this information metric and try to think about patterns. Because we have this finite number of individuals, and we have this field that we're trying to map that has given spatial scales and temporal scales. So it's changing in time. And you know, if I take a measurement here, it's going to be useful, but after a while, not anymore. If I take a measurement now, it's going to be useful, but after a while, not anymore. And so I want to somehow space these guys out in a way that reflects those spatial scales. But I want to keep them moving because I don't want them to sit somewhere because then they're taking redundant measurements. So likewise, they have to move in a way. So we formally define this information metric that's precisely defined in terms of these scales that maybe we've computed empirically from previous experiments. We know something about how temperature varies in Monterey Bay in August, 2000, in August uh, from previous summers. And then we... Uh, we think very hard about how to, I mean, the key here is that we use this family of patterns for which we know how to make it emerge. And we, we optimize over these, these simple parameters rather than this few number of parameters, rather than thinking about any possible trajectory. That's where we get lost, right? Because then you end up with spaghetti paths, you know, the ocean will shoot me if I tell them to do that. So, so I have one last question, way up the back I wanted to ask, is there any evidence of formation of vortices in the school of fish? Like, do the school of fish form vortices of some kind? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, you know, Ian, for instance, with his research group is looking at um, these kinds of qualities in the data that they're collecting on these big swarms of fish. What's that? Yeah, the, 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 the fish movie that I showed beginning, you see them going around. Thank you very much. Thank you.